So, we are concluding the book of Colossians. This is going to be uh, the last message in the book of Colossians. We're covering one verse this morning. And the title of the message this morning is Grace Upon Grace. Grace Upon Grace. Now, it is under the heading Steadfast Prayer, but that just happens to be the series that we're in. And, and it's really, I'm not talking about prayer this morning. So, it may say Steadfast Prayer uh, on your notes, but really it's the conclusion of our study in Colossians. But we can always pray about everything, right? So we can pray that we would learn and come to understand the grace of God more and more. But we're going to look at this picture of grace upon grace. And this is how the Apostle Paul concludes. So to introduce that theme, I just want to tell you a story. I read a story about an illustration about grace in Max Lucado's book, In the Grip of Grace. And Max Lucado tells a story of whenever he pastored his first church. He wasn't married. He was single. And, you know, in a good church, you get together, and if you get, to get together in a group, you bring food, don't you? So his church was having potluck dinners, and as a single man, he didn't contribute very much because he said he didn't know how to cook very well. And so he would bring just terrible things to the potluck. He said one time he brought this little half-eaten jar of peanuts. And it's just already open, half-eaten jar of peanuts, and he brings it to the ladies, and the lady says, I'll oh, bless you, Pastor. And they take his peanuts and they put it in a little bowl. And they put it down the line of the tables of all the food so people can come and get his peanuts. And, and they looked at, at Pastor Max Licato and, and this is what they said. Go ahead, serve your plate. He said, and he looked down the line and this is, this is what he said. He said, those ladies would take my jar of peanuts and they'd set it on the long table with the rest of the food. And they'd hand me a plate and say, go ahead, don't be bashful, fill up your plate. And, and I would. Mashed potatoes and gravy and roast beef and fried chicken. I came like a pauper and I ate like a king. And the Apostle Paul would have loved that symbolism of these potlucks. He would say that Christ does for us precisely what those women did for me. Isn't that good? That's that we bring peanuts and we get mashed potatoes and, and fried chicken and, 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 and steak. And, and, and we get endless supplies of, of nourishment, right? All we have to bring is peanuts, my brothers and sisters. Some of us think we may bring a little bit more, but I want you to know all we bring is peanuts. And God's grace, grace upon grace, is that he gives us, lavishes on us so much more than we could ever give. And this is what we're going to talk about today, the grace of God. What a great way to end the series in Colossians. We've looked at the supremacy of Christ, and he is more than enough. He's all that we need in our Christian life, and his, his word is sufficient for us. Our relationship with him is sufficient, and it's all about his grace and what he's done for us. The Apostle Paul, he signed all 13 of his letters the same way. He signed them, he, he introduced in the same way, and he concluded in the same way. And look at, look at how he started and how he concludes Colossians. Let's look back at Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. And now look at Colossians chapter 4. And once you stand with me as we read the, 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 the one verse we're going to cover today. Let's stand, let's read this verse, Colossians 4, 18. It says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. 
Father, we, we thank you for this morning and the privilege of, of hearing your word taught today. And, and what a great subject it is that we conclude our study in Colossians on. Your grace. Grace upon grace. Grace to us and grace with us. And God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word today. May we be not just hearers, but doers of your word. God, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So you notice Colossians 1, 1 and 2, he says, grace to you. Go back and look at Paul's letters. It's always his introduction. Grace to you. What's he saying, grace to you? Well, when he says grace to you, what he's saying is, is I'm about to tell you that God's grace is for you. It's to you. And, and what Paul does in all of his letters, the first half of all of his letters, he focuses on what God has done for us through Christ. Who we are in Christ. The lavishness of his grace. Grace to you. Grace to you. It is the mark. It marks when he says grace to you. It marks the beginning of Paul declaring the riches of God's grace. And then every letter he also concludes. This is our verse today. I write this reading with my own hand. Remember my chains. Remember that I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he ends with this. Grace be with you. To you and with you. What does it mean grace be with you? It means this. It's meant to acknowledge the fact that without God's continuing grace, we cannot live this Christian life. Without the continuing grace of God, we can't live the Christian life. That is the Christian life, right? Grace to you. Before you're a Christian, it's grace to you in Christ Jesus. You're born again. And then now, after you're born again, it's grace be with you. That as you go in your Christian life, you don't start in grace and then get into works. No, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace upon grace. Grace at salvation. Grace throughout my entire Christian life. It's grace upon grace. Grace to you. And grace with you. So I have a simple word today. Simple word. We're going to talk about the grace that is to us in Christ. As we're concluding Colossians, let's revisit what Christ has done for us. This grace that is to us. And then we're going to talk about, secondly, this grace that goes with us. So the first thing we're going to look at here this morning is that it is by grace that we're saved. It is by grace that we're saved. This is the grace that is to us and for us in Christ. Christ came to us. It was grace to us. It came down. It pursued us. There was a grace that pursued. Is that not what Christ did for us? He pursued us. In the, when we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It is grace to us. It is only by grace that we are saved. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. When somebody has mercy on you, right? You deserve it. But they have mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. None of us deserved what Christ did for us. None of us could earn it. None of us were good enough to earn the grace of God in in our life, the forgiveness that comes through faith in Christ. None of us deserved it, but God gives it liberally anyway to all who would respond in faith. He gives it liberally, grace upon grace. My my question this morning is, is, what do we deserve? What do we deserve apart from Christ? What do we deserve? Look what Scripture says in Jeremiah 17, 9 about who we are in and of ourselves apart from Christ. It says the heart is deceitful above what? All things. Can you think about some things that are deceitful and evil? It says that the human heart, God's word says in Jeremiah through the prophet Jeremiah, the human heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This means it is veiled. The gospel, the people that, that, that don't know the Lord, that aren't in relationship with Christ, they can't see the gospel yet. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan is a is, is working overtime to keep the world, those that know, that don't know Christ, from seeing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only is the human heart naturally sick and separate from God, but the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers at the same time to distract them with the things of the world to keep them from seeing the glorious gospel of Christ. So in some sense, you would say that as human beings, apart from Christ and his work in our life, we are doubly blinded. We're blinded by our own sinful nature, but we're also blinded by Satan. Ephesians 2 talks about this. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by what? By nature. By nature. That means my precious little babies, when they were born, they were by nature children of, they had my last name. But because they had my last name, they were naturally children of wrath. Because all of humanity was born into sin. Because of the sin, because of the fall you see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve plunged all of human history after them into being born in sin with a sinful nature. By nature, we are children of wrath. And look how it culminates in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. (laughs) I mean, look at that description of humanity. And would you not look at our world today and say we look just like Genesis 6, 5 in our world apart from Christ? By nature, we're under the wrath of God. So what do we deserve? If this is who we are, we're under the wrath of God. This is who we are. We're by nature children of wrath. What do we deserve? I asked that question before we read those scriptures. What do we deserve? We deserve judgment. Apart from Christ, every human being lives under the judgment of God. And we're going to read some scriptures that show us that. But we live under the judgment of God. And that's the reality of the core of what the gospel tells us. Is that apart from Christ, we are under his judgment. But the good news is that we can come out from under the judgment and live in grace upon grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and we can be justified right but what do we deserve we deserve the wrath of god and something has to be done something had to be done and what took place jesus came what took place it was the love of god it was the love of god it was the love of god but but you know what we do as human beings We try, when we think something has to be done, we think in terms of, of, I'm going to make amends, right? We have a strong sense uh, through the conscience that God has given us that we're going to work hard to to make right what is wrong. And so we have a a strong bend as human beings towards self-effort. Look at Genesis chapter 3. This is right after Adam and Eve fell. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So because of sin, they 
realized that they were naked. Before that, what does that mean that they realized they were naked? Before that, there was no shame in nakedness. There was no, there was no reality of sin in the life of Adam and Eve, but now sin brings shame into the human race. Sin stains the human race, and now they recognize that they're naked. And what do they do to try to cover the effects of their sin? Eve gets her sewing kit. Adam goes and gets some leaves. He harvests some leaves and they work together and they sew fig leaves together to cover. And that's exactly what humanity has been doing. Something has to be done, does it not? We're under the judgment of God. What's going to be done? Well, as humans, what we try to do is to put fig leaves. Fig leaf religion was birthed in Genesis chapter 3. And it's taken many shapes and many forms throughout human history. Man's failed attempt to to cover up and to atone and to do away with what, what they are and their sins. And, and I'm going to try to be good enough and better enough. I'm going to work hard enough. And every false religious system that points away from the finished work of Christ is a fig leaf religion that ends in people not being forgiven, not out from under the judgment of God. We try hard. We climb the ladder. We jump as far as we can. It's kind of like this. There's a picture of a chasm that I want to show you. I've got three different thing, uh, uh, pictures here. We're going to talk about the first one here just for a moment. And so let's just pretend that the, there's a chasm. Not the, 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 there is a chasm, but we're going to use this as an example. It's a chasm between holy God and sinful man. And sinful man, as we've said, is under the wrath of God. And, and the idea here is, is that we want that sinful man wants to try to get to the other side where God is. We want to try to be reconciled with God. And so what do we do? We run and we jump as hard as we can. We give all of our self-effort. But if you notice that the first person, look, he's about to get down all the way to the bottom there. He tried really hard. Then we got a, a second slide. This lady got a little bit further, didn't she? But where does she end up? At the bottom. Let's look at the third person. That's an it looks like an athlete there, right? And he's stretching out as far as he can. But where does he end up? The bottom. Because that's not how humanity fixes their sin problem. By running harder, trying harder, jumping as hard as they can. Or just, just I'm going to be right with God by restraining my flesh. By trying to make amends in my own strength. I'm going to do it on my own. That's not how humanity is reconciled before God. But that is what we do. And some of us say, well, hey, I'm less bad than you. I jumped a little bit further than you. The truth is, is that all of them, less bad, more bad, they all end up at the bottom of the canyon. At the end, in the end. Something has to be done. There's got to be something different. You might be less bad than me, but both of us, apart from Christ, fall short. We both cannot jump far enough to clear the chasm that exists between us and God. We need grace upon grace. Self-effort religion is exhausting. Fig leaf religion is exhausting. Because you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've prayed enough, if you've gone to church enough, if you've recited the prayers enough. You never know if you've done enough. Fig leaf religion, self-effort religion always leaves you tired and worn out and empty in the end. Something's got to be done. It's got to be grace upon grace. What, what was God's solution? God's solution was far better than anything that humanity has come up with so far. What was God's solution? John three sixteen four. God so loved the world 
that he gave. His solution was grace through love. It was grace through love. His solution was love for God. So loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever would would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This was God's solution. Look at Ephesians 2.4. But God. You remember earlier in Ephesians that we were under the wrath of God. We were were children of disobedience. but, But God being rich in mercy because of what? His great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been, been saved. And here's, here's the picture of the, of the completed chasm. That's how it is. We walk on the grace of God. It's the cross of Christ that, 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 that scales that chasm for us. It's the cross of Christ that gives us access to a holy God. It's not through man-made religion. It's not through self-effort. It's not through being less bad than your neighbor. If you're here today and you think that the way to please God is just to be less bad than your neighbor, less bad than your coworker, less bad than you were last year and the year before that, no, that's not how you're made right with God. You are made right with God only through the cross of Christ. And only through his grace upon grace in your life. A grace that none of us deserve and none of us can earn. It's through that grace. This is what Paul talks about in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Philippians and in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and in Romans. It's about the grace upon grace of Christ. What he's done for us. Salvation is not grace plus. It's not grace plus. It's not grace plus good works. It's not grace plus the spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and praying and fasting and churching, church attendance. It's not grace plus water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save you. Water baptism is a symbol to declare to the world that you are identifying with Christ. It's not grace plus anything. Not grace plus generous giving. It's grace plus Nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel of Christ. You can clap for that one. If you're going to clap at any time in my sermon, that's a good spot. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus, Jesus plus nothing equals grace. Grace upon grace. So our only boast in this picture of what Paul has showed us in Colossians and in, in his other letters our only boast is in Christ. We can't boast in ourselves. If you start getting a little proud of yourself as a Christian, I'm doing pretty good. Man, you're missing the point. You wouldn't be doing good at all had it not been for his grace. You'd be just like those other pictures, trying to jump as far as you can. Right? It's all because of grace. We can only boast in Christ. I love how the Apostle Paul talks about what he boasted in Philippians 3 says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a good Jew uh, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. It's a great tribe. I, I like that tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. That means that he was a strict observer of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Wow. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
He said, I've been, he said, I look at all that as just jumps. I'm jump, trying to jump further, trying to jump further, but he realized I still hit the bottom of, of, of the cavern. I still hit the bottom. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. What does Paul boast in? I only have one boast. I boast in Christ. Grace upon grace. It's all Christ. It's all his work. To him be the glory. If we can't save ourselves and only Christ can save us, then we don't get the glory. Who gets it? Christ does. We can't save ourselves. We'll never be good enough. It's only through Christ's work that we are saved. So it is him that we boast in. I want to read the lyrics of a song. It's called How Deep the Father's Love. It says this, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away. As wounds, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. Amen. The love of God. Grace upon grace. It is by grace that we are saved. This is what Paul focuses on at the beginning of Colossians, the first three chapters. And this is what he focuses on at the beginning of all of his letters. It's grace to you. Grace to you, for it is by grace that we are saved. And now, let's look at grace that is with us. Number two this morning, it is by grace that we live. It's by grace that we save, but it is by grace that we live. Grace be with you. Grace and peace. Grace be with you in peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Christian life is lived through the grace of God. As we live our Christian life, it is not out from under the grace of God. If we are saved apart from works, why would we ever believe that we could stay saved by works? I think sometimes we trick ourselves into believing that. But if you really understand that it's none of us. He, he, he saves us and he sustains us. It's, it's grace upon grace. He saves us and it's his grace that I even walk as a Christian. That I can't keep myself saved by, by, by not being bad. It's his grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And the only way that it's to the glory of God alone is if it's his work. You know, our only response is what? What's our part in salvation? Yes. Believe. That's it. Believe. God does it all. He does the rest. We just say yes. 
Yes to salvation. Yes to sanctification. Yes to his work in our life. If we are saved apart from works, we will never maintain our salvation by working hard. We're once in, we, 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 we are saved. We are really his. That salvation, the grace of God, is manifested in our lives through the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. This is what keeps us. He, we are in the palm of God's hand. I know some of you here today, you, you live under, you've been saved by grace, but some of you, you're not living by grace. You've walked out from under his grace and you are living in your own strength and you're struggling on your own, trying to be good enough. And I want to tell you that you need to have an assurance of your salvation. You need to be reminded that the grace of God that came to you in salvation is yours for eternity. Eternity began at the moment of your salvation and you are his. How do I know that? Because scripture tells us, look at John 10. Verse 27 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. When did you hear his voice? Do you know the date? It was the day that you were saved. My sheep hear my voice. Those that are born again hear the voice of God. Those that are not, they can't. What does it say in Corinthians? The eyes of the unbeliever is blinded. But it's his sheep, it's his children to hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, what does that mean? That means nobody, not even yourself. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. And he is greater than all. So why, are we, why can we not be snatched out of the Father's hand when we belong to him? Because no one's greater than the Father. Some of you think, Pastor Ben, I don't get it. What about sin? Is sin greater than God? Absolutely not. When you're his, you belong to him. What does he do about your sin? We're going to talk about that there here in a few minutes. But I want you to think about this. This is grace upon grace. It's by grace that you're saved. And it's by grace that we live. Some of you here today, you need to be reminded that you are his, that he's in your hands, and no one will snap, snatch you out of his hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will be able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You know, when you become a Christian, you are adopted into the family of God. That's another imagery that, that Scripture talks about whenever we're saved. We, we get a new name. We get a new name. It's kind of like whenever we have children, that child gets my name, gets my last name. We, we adopted Reagan. Some of you here may not know that our, our Reagan Joy Buffkin, we, we adopted her. And we, we've had her since birth. At three, three, from three days old, we had Reagan and we adopted her. And, and, and she took our last name. And I want you to know there's nothing she can do that will ever remove that, la- that, that name from her. One of these days, some guy's going to come up and ask me for her hand, and I'm going to put a shotgun on the table and have a conversation with him. <laughs> but even when, even when she takes his name, she'll always have my name. That's the picture of salvation. When we are adopted into the beloved, into the family of God, we have his name. He puts his stamp on us. We are his forever. John 1, 11 through 12 says this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. How do you become a child of God? 
believe in the name of Christ. You know, there's an idea out there that, that everybody, believers and non-believers, are all children of God. That doesn't align with Scripture. Scripture here says that to have the right to become children of God, you have to believe in the name of now, what, 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 what do people mean when they say that we're all children of God? What they mean is, is that we're all created in the image of God, which means that those who are not believers, they're, they're intrinsically valuable and precious. That's why we fight for the life of the unborn. That's why we fight for every life. The unborn throughout, from, from, birth to, from pre-birth to death, every life is valuable because we're made in the image of God. But only those who place their faith in the name of Jesus can become, gives the right to become children of God. And I got to tell you, if you have God's name, he's not, he's not letting go of you. You're his. We can walk in an assurance of salvation, knowing that we belong to God, that we are his, that our Christian life is not by works, it's by grace. It's his grace in us. But you know, there's some enemies of grace. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna kind of transition here. I want to talk about two different pictures here. The enemies of grace and the means of grace. The enemies of grace in our life as we live our Christian life and the means of grace as we live our Christian life. So what are some enemies of grace? Well, the first one would be legalism. Legalism is an enemy of grace. And this is what false teachers do. They place, they place legalistic burdens on people's shoulders. Look what Jesus said about some legalists in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Legalism is what we fall into when we believe that through our obedience, we are maintaining our salvation. That's what legalism is. Legalism is believing that through external obedience and external things that we are somehow keeping ourselves saved. That's legalism. If you're living under that burden of legalism, you need to be set free today and realize that it's not because you obey God that he stays happy with you and keeps you saved. Because if that was the reality, then, then I, 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 might, I might not be saved next week or actually this afternoon. It, I, might, I might be in trouble, right? It's not because I obey and then I'm good and then I disobey and then I'm not good. No. Legalism tells you that you got to keep you have to you got to keep perfection. You got to keep perfection. This is what our our obedience does. Our obedience is the fruit of salvation, not the means of it. We're called to obey. Look, you read through through the Old Testament. Read what we read in Colossians as we study throughout with the old, in with the new. We are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're called to obey. This is the Christian life. But if we flip the script and we live out from under an assurance of salvation and we believe that it's because I'm restraining my flesh and I'm working hard and I'm not disobeying, then God's happy with me and, and, and I'm still saved. But when I'm not, then I'm out from under that. No, you're his. Legalism. Legalism is an enemy. Of grace. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, legalism takes another form. Legalism can also take the form of non biblical restraints placed on people's shoulders as a way to measure holiness. I'm going to read that again so you catch it. 
Legalism can also be when false teachers or even other Christians who will place non-biblical standards on you as a way to measure your holiness. So that might be somebody that says, well, if you get a tattoo, well, then you're not a Christian or you're not holy. Or if you if you uh, if, if a woman wears makeup or she uh, or she wears fine jewelry, the scriptures that people take out of context and talk about an external holiness. Women can't wear pants and can't wear makeup and jewelry and all that stuff. It's external forms of legalism that are not in scripture, and they place burdens on you because it's that, this idea that if you if you don't do this, then you stay holy. If you restrain from this, then you stay holy. Legalism puts non-biblical things on people's shoulders. And tells them that's how you maintain holiness. You're only holy because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And you live out that holiness in your everyday life. You, You demonstrate that holiness through the way that you live as scripture prescribes it. But legalism flips that and says that's if you don't do this and you do that, that's how you prove that you're holy. What that that's a big enemy of grace is is legalism. Another enemy of grace is condemnation. Condemnation is an enemy of grace. Look at Romans chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in. What does it mean? You hear that a lot in church. There's no condemnation. But there's a huge caveat in that verse, Romans 8.1. There's no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Condemnation belongs to the sinner, not the saint. So an enemy of grace in our life and living under the grace of, of, of God in our life is that whenever we do fail and we do make mistakes, the enemy wants to try to come in and say, you see, if you really love God, you wouldn't have done that. You see, you're out from under God's grace and he wants to bring condemnation. But when you have placed your faith in Christ, you are out from under that condemnation. You have stepped out from under that. You, you, your, your condemnation has been nailed to the cross of Christ. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. John 3 says this. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Where does condemnation belong? To those who don't believe. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The enemy will try and tell you that there is no hope when you blow it. And bring condemnation on you. You need to remind him. Wait, 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 Satan. I, I, I am, I am, I'm, I'm Christ. I belong to him. I'm in his family. I'm a child of God. Yeah, I blew it. And he'll try to come and say, well, you know, you'll never, you'll never get over that. You can't ever be used. It's over for you. No, it's grace upon grace. When you're his, you're out from under the, the, the eternal judgment and condemnation of God. And God is going to work in your life to mature you. Another enemy of grace is isolation. So you have the enemy of grace, legalism, condemnation, isolation. Satan uses our tendency towards isolation against us. When we isolate ourselves from the Lord and from our brothers and sisters, we find ourselves alone in the fight. When the enemy is tempting us, when the enemy is telling us we've blown it, we've done too much, an enemy of the grace of God in our life is isolation. We don't have the, we're not, we're isolating ourselves from the word, we're isolating ourselves from a brother and sister that can look at us and bring grace to us. Those are enemies of grace. So what are the means of grace? The means of grace is the word of God. It's the word of God. You remember it in John 17? Jesus is praying to the Father. He's praying for us. He's praying for the disciples that were 
in his day. But he's also praying for those who would believe through those disciples, which would be us. Look what Jesus says. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How are we going to grow in our faith? How are we going to grow in our Christian life? How are we going to be sanctified, which means to become more like Christ? It's through the word of God. That is a means of the grace of God in our life. So whenever the enemy comes and tells us that we've blown it and we'll, and we'll never amount to anything and we'll never get over that and we'll never be used, God uses the word of God to shape us, to mold us, to mature us. The word of God is a means of God's grace. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is alive, it's active. It works in us. It's a means of God helping us to live in grace in our Christian life. Another means of grace is prayer. God uses the humility of prayer to increase our dependence on him, to strip away our self-reliance. What a great means of grace that prayer is. We come and we humble ourselves before the Lord like we did on Friday night with our citywide prayer night. It was awesome to see over 500 people here from around our community worshiping God, children of God coming together to submit, to humble themselves in prayer. Prayer is a means of God's grace as we live our Christian life. We're saved by grace alone. And we live in grace. And God gives us the means of his word, the means of prayer. What's another means of grace? The discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. So this is where the tension is for us. Because I know some of you felt the tension. You're like, Pastor Ben, you're saying that, 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 that when I'm saved, I belong to him and I can rest in my assurance. Well, what about when I sin? The scripture tells us that when you sin, if you belong to him, He's going to discipline you. What does it mean that he disciplines you? It means that he works in your life. Look what Hebrews 12 says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you guys catch that? A proof that you belong to Christ is that when you blow it, what does God do? He says, come here. Just like I do with my kids. Come here. Let me help you out with that. That was wrong. That attitude was wrong. That decision was wrong. But here, let's go to the means of grace. Let's go to my word. What does my word say? He points us to his word. He disciplines us. And discipline, some people think, well, it's just overbearing and he's going to beat us. No, it's discipline. It's training. It's under the training of God. That is a means of God's grace where he uses the means of his word. He uses the means of the church of God. He uses the means of prayer to discipline us. So we belong to him. He doesn't give up on us. We have assurance of salvation that when we are saved by grace, And we are sustained by grace. And all throughout my life, when I make that mistake, when I sin, I don't lose my justification. I'm still justified. I'm just justified, but in progress. I'm saved, but but God's working on me. And a proof that you belong to him is that whenever you blow it and you make that mistake, the Holy Spirit is in you. He's convicting you. He wants to change you, and you're sensitive to the work of God. This is a means of of grace in our life. And, and, and this is what the Apostle Paul gives us in Colossians. This is who you are. This is how you're to live. But we need to always remember, even with all the admonitions about how we're to live, that we don't approach those admonitions 
thinking that because we pursue those or we do those, that we are more saved than we were when we first got saved. No, we can be less sanctified, but then more sanctified as we get older in Christ. Our salvation is secure. Our sanctification continues to increase and to grow. Do you follow me? It's a means of grace, the discipline of God. The discipline of God is good. Sometimes our children don't think it's good, do they? Do your kids, Dominic, like you when, they, when you discipline them? Mine don't either. And sometimes, you go further on, in Hebrews there it says that discipline is painful at times. How many of you experience painful discipline from God? I remember one time, I'll give you this example, one time I was, one time, years ago I was a youth pastor, like, like, like Dominic, when I was 19 and looked like I was 12. It's true. I mean, I'm 39 and look like I'm 20, 18, 18, I heard someone say. So a long time ago, youth pastor at 12, if you can imagine that. I remember I looked at the youth picture one year, and I, just, I looked like, where's the youth pastor? <laughs> Where, where'd he go? <laughs> well, that's him. And I remember one time, I thought I knew a lot at 19 years old, as most 19-year-olds think they know a lot. And I remember one day, I, I went to my pastor, I went to my pastor, and, and I, I had a word from the Lord for him. I'm not joking. You're laughing at me, but I did. And I wrote it down. And I brought it to him. And in that word from the Lord, it was basically, nutshell, the church is in Egypt. The church is in the wilderness. And it's because we're not doing this and because we're not doing that because we're not pursuing that. And here's this 19-year-old kid brings a letter to the pastor of the church that he's living with, with the guest speaker that morning at the table. I bring the letter and I read it out loud. Can you imagine that? And I, I'll never forget the, the face of the guest speaker that afternoon during lunch. He looks over at my pastor and his eyes get this big. And he just goes, you know, it looks big. So anyway, not long after that, I was let go from my job. And I, I wasn't paid. I was just volunteer. But I, I'll never forget, my pastor came into the church. He called a meeting and he had the board there and I was there and he looked at me and he said, he said, Ben, I'm, I'm going to have to let you go. I mean, youth pastor, because you have a spirit of rebellion. And I remember, I was like, I don't understand. I, I didn't see it. I'm like, and I didn't told him in my non-rebellious attitude. <laughs> I pointed at him and said, that's not true. I don't receive that. <laughs> and then my non-rebellious attitude. And, and I left and ended up here in Homa. Ended up here in Homa. Ended up at a church across town here. And I met this woman. That's what kept me at that church until I married her. <laughs> but I remember the first week, then the second week, then the third week, then the fourth week. Every single service, the discipline of the Lord was taking place. And God, through the preaching of his word, the spirit was working in my heart. And slowly but surely, I saw it. And I went, oh, Lord, what was I doing? How rebellious can you be? How naive can you be? God, forgive me. That was the discipline of the Lord. He worked and he's patient with us. I didn't lose my salvation when I sinned against my pastor and was rebellious against him. No, God was faithful with his children. So what did I do? Called my pastor, my former pastor. He was in Mississippi. I said, I need to come talk to you. And I drove four or five hours and went over there and repented to him. It's the discipline of the Lord. 
Grace upon grace. Uh, another means of grace, and we talked about an enemy of grace is isolation, but what, 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 what's a means of grace? It's the body of Christ is another means of grace. Look at Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A means of grace is the body of Christ. We need each other. I preached that last week. Every member matters. Every member important. Every member a place. And every member ministering to one another. In life groups, in D groups, in men's ministry, in women's ministry. In every interaction with each other on Sundays, we minister to each other. We need each other. When we come together, we worship together. We sing songs together and we hear the word of God taught together it's the body of Christ that we stir up one another to love and good works it's a means of grace when your brother looks at you and tells you how are you doing how could I pray for you or he notices that there's something wrong and he calls you later he texts you later and and says what's going on and you open up and you and you share with your sister or with your brother your burdens that's how God gives us his grace it's another means of God's grace in our life it's grace upon grace We're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. It starts with grace. It ends with grace. It's grace in between. In the the beginning and in the end and in between. It's all grace. Do you believe that? Grace upon grace. By grace we are saved and by grace we stand. God is committed to us. To our sanctification. He's committed to you and I becoming conformed in the image of his son. I want to conclude by reading this story. It's from a sermon called Why Christ Had to Die. And it was written by Pastor Stuart Briscoe. I want to end with this story. I want to read it to you. Many years ago, when the children were small, we went for a little drive in the lovely English countryside. And there was some fresh snow. And I saw a lovely field with not a single blemish on the virgin snow. I stopped by the car. I stopped the car and I I vaulted over the gate, and I ran around in a great big circle, striding as wide as I could. Then I came back to the kids, and I said, now children, I want you to follow in my footsteps. So I want you to run around the circle in the snow, and I want you to put your feet where your father has put his feet. Well, David tried and couldn't quite make it. Judy, our overachiever, was certain she could make it. She failed. Pete, the little kid, took a great run at it, put his foot in my first footprint and then strode out as far as he could and and fell on his face. His mother picked him up and as he cried, she said to me, what are you trying to do? He said, I'm trying to get a sermon illustration. I said, Pete, come here. I picked up little Peter and put his left foot on my foot. I put his right foot on my foot. I said, okay, Pete, let's go. I began to stride one big stride at a time with my hands under his armpits and his feet lightly on mine. Well, who was doing it? Who was walking? In a sense, he was doing it because I was doing it. In a sense, there was a commitment of the little boy to the big dad and and some of the properties of the big dad were working through the little boy. In exactly the same way, in our powerlessness, we can't stride as wide as we should 
We don't walk the way that we should. We don't hit the target the way that we ought. It isn't that at every point we are as bad as we could be. It's just that at no point we are as good as we should be. Something's got to be done. This is the message of grace. God offering you what you don't deserve and empowering you to walk in his footsteps. Isn't that good? So when you're, when you're struggling in your Christian life, just picture your father God, your feet on his big feet and his arms, his hands under your arms. Here, let's walk together. That's grace. Grace upon grace. Would you stand with me this morning?